This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. This episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast is brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online, the fastest, easiest, and safest way to bet on all things sports. With March Madness, the Masters, and Major League Opening Day right around the corner, Bet Online has all the latest news, scores, and odds to help you win big. The best part? You'll receive a 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. That's literal free money. Head over to betonline.ag and use our promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, to receive that literal free money. Plus, signing up is a great way to support the Hardwood Knox podcast which you're listening to in your ears right this very second. And even if you're hate listening to us, go to betonline.ag, promo code BLUEWIRE. Again, that's promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, when you sign up at betonline.ag. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. What? Is up, loyal Hardwood Knox listeners, and new ones too. We hope there's many of you. I am Dan Favalli, coming at you this time without my co-host, Andrew D. Bailey. Have another one of these news roundup mailbag pods for you. Super excited to get into it. First, though, we get to our usual housekeeping notes. Please, above all, rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, continuously and forever. You can also find us wherever else you're getting your podcast, but iTunes is still the best way to really help out the podcast. We appreciate all written reviews, even when they include constructive criticism. Again, we are reading all of them. Definitely give us that five-star rating and most certainly subscribe and download all our episodes. Even if you are consuming your podcast on a different medium, be it Spotify, Google Play, any of that fun stuff, go to iTunes, rate, review us, and subscribe to us anyway. It really helps us out. Cannot stress that enough. It also helps us out if you follow the podcast on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Valley. You can follow Andy at Andrew D. Bailey. Follow the Blue Wire Podcast Network on Twitter as well at Blue Wire Pods. Also, follow our YouTube channel. These mailbag podcasts are not going up there. Uh, if we get an increasing demand for them, they perhaps might start. But our full-length episodes most certainly will be up there. Go to YouTube.com, search Hardwood Knox, and we're going to come up, and you're going to love us, and you can listen to us there. So with all that out of the way, we can now get to... Our Fast Five segment this week, sponsored by absolutely no one this week, but we still do it because it has become a staple, hoping to start your Monday outright if you're listening to this on said Monday. First up, Kyrie Irving, officially done for this season. We kind of had a feeling that would happen when he re-aggravated his uh, right shoulder injury. He's going to have surgery on it and will be done for the year. Um, The Nets have played about 500 basketball without him this season. It's still a loss. Uh, Regardless of what you think about Kyrie Irving, the the man is a walking bucket. Uh, He's shooting 52.2% on twos, 39.4% on threes, many of which come off the dribble. 
and there's just value in having someone who can knock down those looks. His free throw attempt rate is the highest it's been since 2014, 2015, um, and he was converting his looks around the rim at a career-high clip this year. That's only 20 games, so it's not a ton to go off of, but just given what he does for their offense, uh, which has just plummeted by 7.5 points per 100 possessions when he's off the court, one of the seven biggest drop-offs in the league, FYI, it's a loss. Just looking at what's going to happen when they get to the playoffs, and they should get to the playoffs. They have a comfortable lead, um, not necessarily on that seven seed in the East, uh, but just from the nine seed in general. The Wizards are still sort of lurking this season. Uh, they are five games back in the loss column of the Nets, two games back of the Magic at number eight. So the Nets should make the playoffs, but losing Irving is absolutely huge uh, for that. Ben Simmons, getting to our number two note, we're only going to spend... Uh, a couple seconds here because we're going to talk about Ben Simmons a little bit more in depth uh, throughout this podcast. Um, he has lower back tightness, has undergone testing, and per Woj is going to undergo further testing. Uh, by the time that you're listening to this, perhaps we have some clarity on what that is. But if they end up having him miss time, uh, that's that's a huge loss. You know, a lot of people don't like Ben Simmons because he can't shoot, but he is a fantastic playmaker. Uh, one of the most versatile defenders in the NBA, particularly when you look at how much time he spends guarding uh, the opposing team's number one options, and then, of course, just that positional malleability that he has in, in the half court. And he can still get to the rim on offense and, and really finish there as well. The Sixers, when you look at their five best players, or should be five best players, Al Horford's not having a great year, but Embiid, Horford, of course, Ben Simmons, Tobias Harris, and Josh Richardson, they really just haven't been as available as the Sixers would probably like them to be. The offensive rating for the Sixers when they're on the court is uh, definitively not good. Um, that lineup is, is below average comfortably, according to cleaning the glass in, in terms of offensive rating. Uh, still, if you lose Simmons, there have been good lineups when Embiid plays without Simmons. Um, there have been great lineups when Embiid, when Simmons plays without Embiid this year as well. But you still want your two best players at least available for you and you can sort of mix and match from there. So that's going to be something to monitor uh, because the Sixers, you know, they're fifth in the East. They only have a one-game lead in the loss column on the Indiana Pacers. You know, things could get messy there, and it already doesn't look like that they're going to have home court advantage in the first round. And given their road record, which is a not-so-stellar 9-20 and this year, um, getting to that fourth seed, which they are two games back in the loss column of uh, Miami Heat hold it right now, it's kind of fairly huge, and if, if Simmons ends up missing some semi-significant time, that's going to make it that much harder for them to, to really navigate that. And the, the lineups without Embiid just become inherently less attractive without Simmons on the floor because his playmaking is a part of that. He needs other threats to sort of leverage, but the Sixers don't have that other primary ball handler to go it alone when he's not on the court. And so things could get really messy here really soon if he misses any significant time, or even if he's just not right. And that's going to be the other thing. You don't want to see him try to play through this and then uh, aggravate the injury to where it affects him leading into the playoffs. If you're wondering, though, what the Sixers look like without both Embiid and Simmons on the floor, they've only played 574 such possessions this season, minus 7.7 net rating with an offensive rating in the 8th percentile, 102.4. So you're not going to want to see them uh, have to play without Simmons because that means uh, invariably more minutes without both Simmons and Embiid. Markeith Morris, note number three. He's officially cleared waivers and will be a member of the Los Angeles Lakers. 
I know we tend to kind of sensationalize buyouts and these midseason signings in the moment. Uh, the most impactful ones we've seen in recent memories, what Bellinelli and Ilyasova did for Philadelphia, I think it was three years ago now. I don't remember the exact season. And then they just weren't that great leading into the playoffs. I think this year, Marvin Williams, depending on how often the Bucks plan to use him, he really could make a huge impact for the Bucks, just because they're destroying teams when they go with Giannis as their lone big on the floor. And Williams makes those lineups a lot more playable in the postseason, in essence, because Giannis necessar- isn't necessarily the center in those situations. And so I'm just very interested to see what he does for them. But this, in my opinion, could end up being, unless Damari Carroll just turns back the clock a half decade to when he was healthy or semi-healthy, uh, this could end up being one of the more impactful midseason signings. Uh, Markeith Morris is shooting 39.7% from three. He can do a little bit of stuff off the dribble. He's hitting a high clip of his shots around the rim. I think what gets really important is the Lakers don't have those bodies to go after these bigger wings right now. And now Markeith Morris gives them that. So when you go small with Anthony Davis at the five, uh, you're going to have him there. And, and that's going to be inherently more appealing in many situations than Kyle Kuzma. Or you can elect to go um, and play Kyle Kuzma like a wing since LeBron's basically your point guard anyway, where it's Davis, Morris, Kuzma, LeBron, and then you know Avery Bradley, Caruso, KCP, whoever you want there. Those lineups could actually work. Uh, Laker Film Room, uh, Pete over there, pointed out on Twitter that he thinks Kuzma's better defensively this season as a wing anyway. I kind of sort of agree. And it, well, I, I almost have to agree because he's watched way more of the Lakers than I have. But uh, Kuzma, to me, since like the middle of last season, it seems like he's made some defensive strides, maybe regressed a little bit this year. There's there's just a ton of off-ball stuff that are issues with him. And so maybe if you're going against a wing, you're going to be dealing with less screens because he's never going to be on the primary ball handler, and then you don't have to worry about those guys being used as the, the rim runner. Maybe that helps. So it's a good theory. I've always thought that he might be a little bit better, though, defending those bigger forwards. Um just because those are the guys that are going to be in place a little bit more on the flip side uh, when they're just in place a little bit more and, and you don't see them getting as many on ball reps, he, his, his mind has time to wander and he can kind of get beat there. So that will be something to monitor is his playing time. He had a great game uh, in the Lakers win over the Celtics, really impactful along with Rondo uh, somewhat ironically or oddly, whatever you want to call it. This podcast is actually being recorded directly after that game. So watch the, what Markeith Morris does in Los Angeles. He's one of those buyout guys that I think could end up getting fairly substantial minutes and, and making a, a pretty sizable impact. To note number four, or item number four, whatever you want to call it. This is actually going to be a question because I think it ties into what we were just talking about and the deadline to add players for the um, playoffs is swiftly approaching March 1st. It is from Twitter user Anthony at Hoopston Rockets. How does an NBA buyout work? Does the team who is releasing the player have to pay for his entire salary, or does the new team continue paying for it? It's a great question, and so I think the easiest way to break it down is like this. If a team ends up waiving a player, and let's just use Markeith Morris as an example. It was a buyout, but let's just say that they, the, the Pistons ended up waiving him and his full $3.2 million salary this season. If, that, if another team had claimed him on the waiver market, Detroit is not responsible for his remaining salary because they would just be paying him what he's owed. If he does clear waivers, as he did in this situation, um, some of that money is going to be offset by what he ends up signing for with the Lakers. It's not going to be the full amount. I think it's half. This is going to sound confusing, but I believe it's half of the distance 
um, between what he signs for and then the minimum salary. And so the Lakers signed him for $1.8 million. And so the difference between that and the, I think it's the prorated minimum salary right now, split that in half, and that's going to be the money that the Pistons offset. If anyone fancies themselves more of a CBA expert than I, uh, I, I trust you, then that's fine, and want to claim that I'm wrong, but I'm fairly certain that that's correct. So those are how the buyouts work. Item number five, the Dallas Mavericks are going to channel their inner Houston Rockets. They have filed a protest to the NBA League office um, for their 111-107 loss to the Atlanta Hawks. On Saturday, um, this claim focuses on the putback from John Collins. Uh, that was initially the whistle was blown, and it was looked like it was going to be ruled by an offensive goaltend. But then it was ruled um, after video review there it was called an inadvertent whistle, and they counted the Collins basket. And so there was 8.4 seconds remaining, and that gave the Hawks a four-point lead. And what the Mavericks are essentially saying is that they want to play uh, the game over with a, a jump ball with 9.7 seconds remaining and Atlanta leading by two points. The last time that this has worked, that the Rockets lost their protest earlier this year when they uh, made a claim in their 135-133 double overtime loss to the San Antonio Spurs, the NBA ultimately ruled that Houston had enough time to make up for the error. This is a little bit different because it happened so close um, to the end of the game, nine inside 10 seconds remaining for the Rockets. They were focusing uh, on the, the breakaway dunk that wasn't counted with 750 remaining in regulation. So maybe this is a little bit different. Uh, as ESPN noted, the last time, though, that teams were reconvened to, to play uh, the finish of a game once again was March 8th, 2008, between the Miami Heat and Atlanta Hawks. So maybe somehow or something that's a good sign for the Mavericks. But that'll be something to to remain post to, to keep an eye on too. It's just, it'd be really funny if they end up playing the game over. That's just, I don't know, to me, just a little bit in inherently funny there. Let's get to the mailbag though. Got a few questions lined up here. Going to try and get to as many as possible to keep the podcast within its uh, preordained time constraints. This first one comes from our regular listener and question answerer, Miroslav Cook, who has yet to tell me how terribly I'm butchering his pronunciation, so uh, he can feel free to get at me. His Twitter handle is at MCUKMF, and his question is, why are the Lakers so bad with LeBron off and AD on the court? It's a fair question because Anthony Davis is supposed to be a top seven player, just like LeBron, who's top five, top three. Some people might think he's the best. That's fine. Whatever. You have two superstars. You would expect them um, to both be able to carry their own lineups. Uh, I, one of the things that stands out to me is that Anthony Davis is not this primary creator. He can create some of his own shots from the face-up position, but he's going to be reliant on other guys to get him the ball within the flow of the offense as he's getting towards the rim, running the floor, all that kind of stuff. And when you remove your team's best playmaker without having another solid one behind him, your team is going to struggle. And he's played a ton of minutes with Rondo, uh, through which the Lakers are minus 9.8 per 100 possessions. Uh, their offensive rating during that time is in the 41st percentile. However, the biggest Lakers issue without LeBron on the floor, just statistically, has been the defense. And which is just funny, LeBron's playing probably his best defense since he was in Miami. Uh, at least over the course of an entire year. So losing him has actually hurt them. Uh, the other thing, though, is is that his minutes, Davis's, without LeBron, have included many, 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 many reps with both Kyle Kuzma and Rondo, uh, two of the most inconsistent defenders in the league. And when those three are on the court together, uh, the defensive rating is 119 
in the fourth percentile. That is very much not good. I don't know how responsible Anthony Davis is for that. You know that Andy has been you know, banging the Anthony Davis shouldn't be considered for defensive player of the year drum. And if we're talking about over Rudy Gobert, if we're talking about over Giannis Antetokounmpo, who should absolutely win the award, if we're, if we're talking about over, you know, I think there's debates between Brooke Lopez, Ben Simmons, um, all, all these guys. Anthony Davis is a really good defender, and I don't think that's what Andy's arguing, but we, we need to recognize that. And so we can't cover up for everybody. Teams during these stretches are shooting 64.4% at the rim, and 37.8% from three when Anthony Davis plays without LeBron. When he's playing with Rondo and Kuzma, teams are shooting 41.7% from three and about the same at the rim. There's just so much for him to cover up, and he's going to be the guy that comes out of the paint a lot of the times too. He's mostly a center in those lineups, but there have been some LeBron lineups where, no LeBron lineups, excuse me, where he isn't the primary big. And so I also think that that's why you're not going to see him as, have as big of an impact around the rim and see teams get there a little bit more. If he's flying around and trying to cover guys who are on the perimeter or, or he's switching or he's trying to break, break up plays, uh, you know, ball handlers, if, if they find a seam, they're not going to worry about challenging a Dwight Howard or a JaVal McGee at, at the rim. In the no LeBron minute specifically, though, that's not really an issue. And so because Davis is primarily the five, but that's, that's just the thought there. When you look at the personnel, I really think that uh, playing a lot of minutes with Kuzma and Rondo at the same time, and then you just compile that with the fact this team doesn't really have guys who can defend the bigger wings in general. Maybe Markeith Morris can now, and that that's where the, the, that's just going to exacerbate the issue when you don't have LeBron on the court and when you don't necessarily have Danny Green on the court. Next question comes from Preston Ellis, a co-worker of mine and Andy's, writes over at uh, Bleacher Report. Uh, Twitter handle, at Preston Ellis, spelled exactly as it sounds. Which fan base fills your mentions the most? If the answer is the Los Angeles Lakers, who is second? So I want to make this clear that I'm not shitting all over any fan base. I know that Twitter is a snapshot of a snapshot of fan bases. And I've had positive interactions with every fan base. I've had negative interactions with every fan base. I've accused, I've been accused of being biased towards every fan base. So th- these are not shots. Um, I, I will say people probably gravitate towards Lakers because they can be the loudest at points. They have a huge fan base. And there's ever since the LeBron signing the Anthony Davis trade, there's always going to be that Lakers exceptionalism. That's not everybody, but it's just going to be omnipresent there. I will say two fan bases that have been particularly hostile, and I've had interactions with fans and, and media members from this team that are that are uh, great. One of them is, in fact, my co-host, because it's the Utah Jazz, Andy Bailey, that, that Jazz fan. But Utah and Phoenix, uh, they, they can be hostile, some of the fans I've interacted with. And maybe that just spawns from they feel like their stars are underappreciated, uh, being, you know, Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell for the Jazz and then Devin Booker for, for Phoenix. Uh, but those are the fans that I've probably had or... I try not to respond to people who are angry anymore since I've, I've gotten older unless they want to have an actual conversation. And again, I have with Phoenix and Utah fans. I've had very productive discussions. Those are the fan bases that stand out. I'm not just going to pick on those two, though. Um, Blazers fans, I'm, this is actually a compliment. They can get heated in a comment section, which I do read, but I really appreciate the thoroughness and the depth with which they go into the comment section. Uh, that's it's incredible to me, and they seem like one of the most loyal commenter fan bases, if that makes any sense. Um, Sacramento, the Sacramento Kings, and the New York Knicks, those are the fan bases where there seems to be just internal strife within the fan base, where there are Kings fans who don't want to hear all these negative takes, 
on the Kings, but then there are the Kings fans and, and the writers and bloggers who are just very real when it comes to the Kings. And there's like that conflict right there. And then it's the same thing with the Knicks where they have these media members and these fans who are just absolute fucking shills for the team. Uh, it bugs the hell out of me. But then you also have a large portion of the fan base that's going to be really hard on them. Same with a large portion of the media. And so th- that's just an interesting dichotomy when you're looking at um, how media and fans of one team view that same team. Those seem to be the fan. Those seem to be the bases because they're not all media members and fans, obviously, where there's just the most uh, divisiveness just w- within there. And then I'm going to say for Raptors fans, they've done probably the biggest 180 I've seen. They've gone from, why don't you talk about our team enough? And this is not everybody. Again, uh, Raptors and Raptors Twitter is really funny, by the way. They're one of the more comical subsections of Twitter. But now this season, they're just like, they won a title and now they're flexing and they, they kind of deserve it. But the amount of tweets that I see about Giannis coming to Toronto in 2021 uh, I almost I feel bad for Bucks fans that we talk about it that Ortstad has talked about so much. We don't really I don't think we over talk about it on this podcast. Feel free to let me know if I'm wrong. But just going from Toronto, where it's why don't you talk about our team enough? Where maybe it wasn't even last season because they had Kawhi, but two years ago to now where they are here, they're just flexing on everybody and tweeting these jokes about how Giannis is coming to the Raptors. I I kind of respect it. So those are just some random categories. I don't want to pick on any one fan base. And there, again, I've had positive and negative interactions with every, every single fan base. Just thought those were some interesting categories to go through. Fun question, Preston. I do kind of think that you were trying to bait me into getting in trouble here, though. Uh, our next question comes from uh, Twitter user BirdUp, uh, handle at NPinto628. I believe that's Nick Pinto. He's also a regular customer here. How should the Hawks brain trust feel about the Trey Luca trade at this point? So, this is what it basically amounts to, is that the Hawks traded Luka Doncic for Trey Young and Cam Reddish. They are not going to have the best player in that trade. They've, all, they've already lost that gamble. Um, Luka Doncic is borderline top 10, top 15 player right now. He's going to be a perennial MVP candidate, it looks like. Trey Young, I think he probably top, he could be an MVP candidate, but he's going to top out somewhere significantly lower than than Luka, and a, a big part of that is his defense. You can make the case he's already a top 10 offensive player. He's 13th in luck-adjusted, offensive, real-adjusted, plus-minus. Uh, RAPM is one of my favorite catch-all things to cite now, so that's why it's, it's a mouthful. So he's 13th there, but go over to the defensive side in the same category. So we're looking at uh, DRAPM, adjusted for luck. He ranks 506th out of 506th. And you have to appreciate what Trey Young does in the offensive end. He can still be a top 25 player, while being a complete non-factor on defense, just the number of unassisted threes that he hits, his passing, the way he's hitting uh, floaters in the lane and can get his shots up over these larger defenders. He can be a top 25 player. He can be an all-NBA player. We've already seen that he made an all-star game. And regardless of whether you think he belongs as a starter, he belonged in the all-star game, even as a reserve. So there's that. The defense, though, is really kind of the, the swing factor of his game. Can he be closer to a Damian Lillard or a Kyrie Irving on defense where I don't think he's ever going to make this huge impact. And I'm actually going to confess that I haven't really paid attention to Damian Lillard's defense this year and haven't seen enough of Kyrie Irving, but I want to look at last year specifically for those two players. Um, You didn't see, well, 
Last year, Irving regressed. His first year in Boston, you saw what he can do if he's going to fight over screens. Uh, Damian Miller does not die on nearly as many screens anymore. Um, he's also has a 6'8 wingspan, which I think is a, a little bit longer than people would expect from him. So he can get into the, the airspace of some shots. But he does, there are stretches where he works, but he's never been this really good defensive player. Um, Kyrie might just be a better example because he has. Uh, not as short a wingspan of Trey Young. Young is at 6'2". Kyrie Irving is, is at 6'4", looking at their wingspans. Still, uh, if if you can get to a point where Trey just isn't going to die on screens, where it doesn't look like he's doing nothing all the time, uh, off the ball, on the ball, I, where it seems like he has some sort of purpose, you're never going to be able to hide him. Like He just doesn't have the, the size to be hidden, and I think we've always underestimated how much Stephen Curry can... Uh, fight on the defensive end when he doesn't have to guard opposing point guards. Uh, if Trey Young can get to that point, I'm going to say a Kyrie Irving point where he will sometimes fight over screens then and, and just look like he's trying more. I'm never going to accuse an NBA player of not trying, but if he can get to that point where the aesthetics can sometimes just match up with our detective detection for effort i just want to say if that could just match up with it his ceiling goes even higher because we know what he's going to be on offense and he's arguably already one of the 10 best offensive players in the league now all that said he's never going to be better than luka Doncic. i just don't see it Doncic is not a good defender himself but you list him at six eight he's just going to be easier to hide by virtue of his size so there's that element and that leaves us leads us to cam reddish where if you're going to win this trade or even come out even, he needs to be, I would probably say, a fringe all-star. Like, not Chris Middleton level. And Middleton's not a fringe all-star. I'm just trying to... Can he be in the third or fourth best player, I'm going to say, on a championship contender? That's what you probably need him to turn into. Um, because you're not one. You're not sure if Trey Young can be the best player on a contender because of his his defense. Uh, he could definitely be the second best player. But and I, I actually do think he could be the first best, if, if anyone cares. So... Can you have Cam Reddish get to that level where maybe he's three, four, if you even want to say five? I don't know if he ever gets there on offense. He seems like he can make an impact on defense. Very disruptive. He can really get into passing lanes and, and poke the ball away. Quietly, though, if you look at his last 15 games, shooting 39.2% from three on 4.9 attempts per game. So he's been getting a little bit better on offense, shooting 86% from the foul line during that stretch. Will there come a point where you can trust his ball handling a little bit more? He basically has a one-to-one assist-to-turnover ratio during this span. You're probably going to be more inclined to see what DeAndre Hunter can do at a ball handler, or and uh, Kevin Herter, most cer- certainly, before Reddish there. Those are all things to consider. Uh, league average true shooting over this time about, 56.1 compared to league average, which is 60, 56.2. Those are all good or better than expected, maybe harbingers, but if he doesn't turn into... That championship level high end starter impact player, you're going to end up losing the trade. And maybe you're able to flesh out the roster around everybody so that you win a championship before Luka Doncic does, or you do better just as a franchise than the Mavericks do with Luka Doncic. And I don't know that you could say you won the trade, but you're still going to make it out ahead. Uh, it's, I, I still think if you're the Hawks' brain trust, though, to really answer the question, you, you have to feel uneasy about it just because there's a chance that. Luka Doncic ends up being the best player in the NBA one day. I don't think Trey Young has that same ceiling. He's close because I, I do think he can be a top 10 player, but but the defense is a biggie. He's just never going to have the non-liability status that we've seen from a Lillard, that we've seen from a Stephen Curry. Our next question comes from Theo Naparstak. 
Twitter handle at Theo Noparstak, N-O-P-A-R-S-T-A-K. What would your closing five be if you coached the Lakers? This is kind of funny because I had tweeted out a few weeks ago a, a gif of uh, someone picking names out of a hat, captioning it, Frank Vogel deciding his closing lineups. Because the games that I've tuned in for the Lakers, um, where they've entered crunch time or it's been tight in the fourth quarter, it seems like there are all these different lineups on the court. Uh, so I looked up what their most played units were, and that feeling sort of just matches up with what's happened. They've uh, they've had no lineup play more than 51 minutes in the fourth quarter. The most played unit is LeBron James, Dwight Howard, Rondo, KCP, and Kuzma, which speaks to... Uh, Anthony Davis's substitution patterns, one, uh, and then some injuries. So there's that to consider. And that's not that's also not looking at crunch time. This is the entire fourth quarter. Uh, so I, I decided to just look at this as I have a base three for the Lakers. LeBron, Danny Green, and Anthony Davis. Now, how do you want to flesh out those, those three? I, I think I want to have Avery Bradley in there. Um, just because his his on ball abilities, and you're not going to have someone who could match up with bigger wings well anyway. Uh, KCP has not fared well in that role. Caruso's not that guy. Kuzma is not that guy. Maybe Morris can be that guy. That's a name to consider. So I have LeBron, Bradley, Danny Green, and Anthony Davis. Now, if you add Kuzma in there, that lineup has played 92 possessions. It has a 9.7 offense, uh, 9.7 net rating, and a 96.8 defensive rating. If you put in Caruso with those four, LeBron, Bradley, Green, Davis, they're plus 26.6 points per 100 possessions. They've only played 63 total possessions. If you use KCP with those four, only a 32 possession sample, net rating of 16.2. I will say this. I would be all for more Caruso down more Caruso down the stretch of close games. I think that would be a really interesting flex, and he's not going to give you those minutes against the bigger wings. Uh, so maybe you're not as inclined to do that. Maybe it's a Bradley or Caruso situation, but I think that's the one I would lean toward. If it's not him at this point, I'm just going to say, put Markeith Morris in there and let's see what happens. Like that's my closing lineup right now. It's LeBron, Avery Bradley, Danny Green, Anthony Davis, and Markeith Morris. I would understand putting KCP in over Avery Bradley if you have Markeith Morris in there too, because then KCP's defensive responsibilities change. I know that answer is kind of all over the place, but that's, basically been how the Lakers fourth quarter rotation has been this season. Uh, our fifth question comes from Twitter user Mac at B Mac Lynn. When will the media stop saying the Clippers only care about the postseason as if they are the 2017 LeBron Cavs, 2018 Warriors or Duncan Spurs? Kawhi Leonard is the only one who has been to a final. So how does that logic apply to the other players? It doesn't. Now I think Mac sort of gets to the heart of what people worried about behind the scenes, where you have a Montrez Harrell, a Lou Williams, Patrick Beverly, where aside from injuries, these guys are just devoted every game players. And you have a Kawhi Leonard who's just going to look at the season as a marathon, as this this gradual process where he's not going to prioritize it as much. And we see it with the way that he is load managed throughout the year. I also don't think it helps that many are assuming Paul George would have played more this season if these games were more important. Um, He's just dealt with a ton of injuries, most recently a hamstring issue. He and Kawhi Leonard have only appeared in 18 games together thus far. I don't think it's an insult to say that the Clippers only care about the postseason, but they're just one of the teams where you look at who their two best players are. That's what you're focusing on. And that's the goal also is to win 
the finals. That's why you went all in on that Paul George trade. You gave up a zillion first-round picks, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, and Daniil Gallinari. That matters. And so with the focus being so solely on the finals, that's why the media is going... It is. It can be lazy at, at, one point, at some points, but that's why the media is going to say they're they care about the 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 pro season more than the regular season that they just don't care about the regular season i also think we can point to the way that Kawhi leonard defends sometimes and he's really leading leading into the all-star break of the games i saw he really started to like turn it on on and off the ball where it was like oh is he playing for the spurs right now is what it looked like so maybe that just means that he's feeling better overall but he i think if you define the team by his motor at times and he plays hard all the time, but there are just, he can have these games. Look, look at the all-star game. He decided he wanted the inaugural Kobe Bryant MVP award. So he just went out and got it. And you're not going to get that approach from him every single night. And that trickles down to the rest of the team. It's not an effort thing. I just think this team is very committed to the bigger vision because they have what is effectively a two-year title window before you deal with Kawhi and Paul George entering free agency. That that really matters. So I don't think it's an insult when when people say that. But the logic, you are right, Mac, it doesn't track with the other players because Trez, um, Beverly, aside from when he's been dealing with injuries, Lou Williams, you know, the, the rest of the team, those are guys that aren't going to necessarily take the same approach. And neither Kawhi or Paul George is the most vocal leaders. Uh, so I don't think that their thoughts have been imprinted or their beliefs have been imprinted on everyone else. But you also have to imagine that Doc Rivers has kind of told his team this season is a slog and that they're trying to focus on the bigger picture as well. And I, I think we really saw it. You know, they go in with that with that Marcus Morris trade. And also I think that trade proves that they're not only concerned with the postseason because he's someone that should help you you know, he's going to stop the ball a little bit, but the Clippers don't play with a ton of flow anyway. You could debate whether they needed more of a matchup-proof big. Zubats is a good rim protector, but he can fall behind some guys. Harrell, you're going to bleed defensive rebounds when he's your center, and he might be played off the court in certain situations. You can definitely argue that. You could argue that they needed another uh, ball handler, maybe a pass-first point guard, or just someone who's uh, more accustomed to running the point, even more so than Williams. Is Reggie Jackson that guy who, who knows how many minutes he'll actually play? So... You can make those cases, but Morris feels like more of a a both regular season and, and postseason acquisition because of what you can do when Paul George isn't in the game, when he's dealing with injuries. It just sort of gives you that replacement score. Not the, He's not the level of playmaker that Paul George is. And then in the playoffs, he, he sort of allows you to downsize in a way that you otherwise couldn't. You could always put your Michael Green at the five. Those lineups have not been used very much this season, however, and the defense returns on them have been bad. There is... A blueprint to them working, though, they worked against the Warriors in the first round last year, and now with Morris there, and if you have Leonard and Paul George at the same time, you can go smaller, you're not really giving up too too much size. If you play the Rockets, where you're going to have P.J. Tucker at center, Morris can even be your center for stretches. So those are all things to consider. Our next question, I'm surprised it took us this long to get this question, actually, since we've started doing these you know, multiple mailbags a week it comes from Twitter user Tony at Tony Cobb one seven seven. Do the Pacers move Miles Turner this off season? My answer is going to be yes, and it's I'm I like Miles Turner better than than Demantis Sabonis long term. Uh, but you gave Sabonis a little bit more money. He's someone that you're going to run the offense through more, and it just seems like. Turner hasn't been able to carve out this consistent role offensively where he can go through these super passive stretches or where um, these long durations where it doesn't feel like he's very involved in the offense. And that's just going to be tough 
to break. And you can stagger these two only so much because you're paying them a combined uh, $37.8 million next season. So this season, it's fine. You're still paying uh, Sabonis rookie scale money. These two together, though, I just want to say it's not a dire situation. Uh, the Pacers have a defensive rating in the 93rd percentile when they play together. Uh, they're plus 3.2 points per 100 possessions overall. However, the offense still gets bogged down. It was really up there for a while this season, but in part because of how they've played since Victor Oladipo has returned, uh, they're now down to a 107.1 offensive rating with Turner as a bonus on the court. That rates in the 28th percentile, which, for those at home who might not know that, is not very good. And it's, again, as, as I just sort of alluded to, it's been even worse with Oladipo on the court. In the time that those three have been on the floor together, sub-200 possessions, the offensive rating is 89.7. That would be in the first percentile, which is atrocious. So there's a path to it working defensively, but I think offensively there's always going to be this tug-of-war because only one of them shoots threes, and can you trust Miles Turner to be as aggressive as you need him to be on most nights? And yes, there is an element that if Miles Turner isn't taking Davis Bertans' volume behind the three-point line, which he'll never do because he's taking more so pick-and-pop looks, uh, uh, standstill looks, where Davis Bertans is going to fly around screens and throw off throw up off-balance threes. They're not comparable players. I'm just trying to show the discrepancy in the types of shots they're taking. It's really, he spaces the floor, but it's also, you're, you're not gaining so much because Sabonis isn't as much, even with his strong, long two game. So unless he becomes a high-volume three-point shooter, or at least a similar volume three-point shooter to Turner, I feel like you're always going to have that just sort of odd ball push and pull on the offensive end. I do think they trade Turner this offseason, unless they end up winning the championship or something in the, in the playoffs or make it to the conference finals because Old Depot's all the way back. I'll be interested to see what the market is for him just because he his feet can be super quick on uh, the defensive end of the half court. He, he can switch on to smaller players. He really improved his stance over the past you know season plus. And he was in the defensive player of the year conversation last season, or at least the fringe of it. So I think he's he's someone, you know, this isn't a strictly a rim runner like Clint Capella. Uh, so he's not going to really mitigate your spacing and doesn't only need to be used in, in pick and pops. Maybe a team like Boston, that's been the one most linked to him. Uh, New Orleans, that would be a great fit for him with Zion, unless you want to close all the time with Zion at the five. I don't think you then want to pay your starting center Miles Turner money. So those are two teams that stand out. Uh, Golden State, if they really wanted to, you know, they're going to have that Minnesota pick, their own pick. They have Wiggins. I don't think the Pacers want him. That would have been more interesting had they kept Russell. You look at Russell uh, as the primary bait. Does he help you get Turner and then a salary filler? You even need to move your pick in that scenario. That would have been something interesting. I know the Pacers have Brogdon and Victor Oladipo, but they almost sort of have room for another guy like Russell too, given how these perimeter players just plop into their defensive system and they're all of a sudden okay. We've seen it with TJ Warren this year. So that that's a that's another good question, something I want to be monitoring over the the offseason. Our our next question, uh, this is the Ben Simmons question that I alluded to, and I'm actually trying to to find it because I, I do not have the the link to it. So I'll credit the Twitter user in a moment. But the, the actual question is, how good would Philly be if instead of spending money on guys who play the same positions as Embiid, who's a center, and Simmons, who's a power forward, but he's actually a point guard, they actually had a guard rotation similar to Denver's or OKC's. Now, the answer here is they would just be really, really good. And that's been the biggest qualm, is you either need to put guys around Simmons and Embiid who can create on a high-volume basis for themselves and for others, or guys who can take a ton of threes 
some of which come off the dribble as well. They don't really have that person. Josh Richardson and Tobias Harris are sort of the middle ground there, and that's fine, but they're not going to be these high-end creators for others. And that's what you got in Jimmy Butler, even when his three-point shot wasn't falling. And you need that strong, proven face-up weapon for crunch time. So they don't have that, and that's what you also lose in Jimmy Butler. Uh, The big thing here, though, is they, they went the wrong way with Horford. And I think that's what killed them more than, I think signing Horford hurt them more than losing Jimmy Butler, if that makes sense. Had they not had either of those two guys, maybe bring back Redick instead, I think they're they're better off. Um, Simmons and Embiid, when they play without Horford, the, those lineups have a 116.6 offensive rating. That is so much higher than anything else the Sixers are used to with Simmons and Embiid. When both Simmons and Embiid are on the court this season, 107.2 offensive rating. Embiid with no Simmons, 109.9. Simmons with no Embiid, 112.2. That's the only one of those three combinations that rates better than the 50th percentile in offensive efficiency. So to have a 116.6 offensive rating and a really good three-point clip uh, when you're playing those minutes with those two without Horford, it's big. Uh, Horford has not been shooting well from three this season overall, but he's shooting 26.3% from three when Joel Embiid is on the court. It's just, it really fucks up the spacing. There's no other way to put it. And so if you go with lineups where you have Ben Simmons and Embiid, and then you fill it out with Josh Richardson and Tobias Harris, I think those have to be your other two. There, There might be a case to be made that Tobias Harris maybe isn't the best fit for those lineups, but you have, let's say, the Ben Simmons, Josh Richardson, Tobias Harris and Joel Embiid base, and you can just sort of mix and match from there. Do you go with a Matisse Thibault? Do you go with a Furkan Korkmaz? Do you even go with a Mike Scott? Those are lineups that can work too because he's been just a little bit more reliable of a threat from three than Al Horford at points. So, uh, you know, I, if I had to pick a fifth for those situations, I, I might mean Korkmaz uh, just, just because he seems to have had the better year. That lineup has not done well with those five, minus 5.8. Um, net rating in just 53 possessions. And that's really the main issue here is that you haven't seen those four play a ton without Al Horford on the floor. The, the bigger number to me is just the option. The bigger difference to me is the optionality you get by having Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid on the floor without Al Horford. And that's what we're missing when people talk about, oh, one of them needs to go. Maybe we reach that point. Maybe that two-player core tops out. But the Sixers have not given it a viable shot. They have not built the team around those two players and how you need to play with those two guys as your best options. And the fact that they haven't done that for us to say that they need to go and trade Simmons or trade Embiid, it's premature. Maybe that's ultimately what they do because who knows if they can move Al Horford's contract. But the bigger misstep is not pairing these two together or keeping them together. It's a fundamental failure to fill out the roster properly around them. So that's what we need to keep an eye on it. And maybe they'll They'll end up remedying that this offseason. This question, by the way, came from Doc Ellerly at Ride with Doc. So thank you for that. This mailbag was a little bit longer than I anticipated, but we did get through a fast five. We covered a lot of ground here. Thank you all for listening. Again, follow the show. Subscribe to it, rate it, review it on iTunes, wherever else you're getting your podcasts. Follow us on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. Follow me and Andy on Twitter. I'm at Dan Favalli. Andy is at Andrew D. Bailey. The podcast network is at Blue Iron Pod. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Until next time, I leave you with a shout out to Kyle Anderson and, since I'm feeling generous, Ben Ogushu. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. 
relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.